0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Seeing Ershadi by Nicole Krauss, which was published in The New Yorker in March of 2018.
1: What I knew of love had always stemmed from desire, from the wish to be altered or thrown off course by some uncontrollable force. But in my love for Urshadi, I nearly didn't exist beyond that great feeling.
0: The story was chosen by Ling Ma, the author of the novel Severance and the story collection Bliss Montage, which came out in September. Hi, Ling. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Deborah. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so why uh, did you choose a story by Nicole Krauss to read today?
1: Well, I think. I think I picked seeing Urshadi because I don't actually understand it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit mysterious to me, and it feels like a riddle. I also think it describes this feeling very well, which occurs maybe more when you're younger, sort of encountering a work of art at the right time can seem like this supernatural sort of intervention. And that often happens when you're young, but also maybe during times of grief when You're already sensitized. And there's sort of a melancholic air to this story that I also liked. The story involves
0: um, a character who sees a movie, or rather an actor in a movie, who makes an enormous impression on her and her life. Um, Has something similar happened to you?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Not with Taste of Cherry, although that's one of my husband's favorite films. But, yeah, other films, other pieces of artwork that I kind of, you know, try to keep in my mind, like amulets that are able to kind of carry me through difficult times in my life. And, yeah, I think this story captures that need very well.
0: Have there been particular works of art that, that did that for you?
1: Um, well, one of my favorite artworks is one of Felix Gonzalez Torres's uh, "Piles of Candy." Um, the title—well, they're all untitled—but in parentheses, I think it's "Portrait of Ross in LA." Mm-hmm.
0: And what is it? What is it meant for you?
1: Well, the pile of candy is um, calibrated to the artist's lover who passed of AIDS, and um, it's calibrated to the. Glover's wait, and um, the museum goers are allowed to take candy from it, and slowly the pile diminishes. And so you think about this body that diminishes and wastes away, but at the same time, like these multicolored, you know, foil-wrapped pieces of candy, it's so celebratory. So you have both ends of the spectrum, that sense of something dying, and you have the sense of something festive and celebratory happening.
0: It's interesting because you have a similar thing going on in the story, where this Abbas Kiarostami film *Taste of Cherry*, which came out in 1997, inspires a sort of desperation or seems to be filled with hopelessness, and then also fills another character with joy. So it's mm-hmm. um, it's interesting how multivalent artworks can be. Do you think that there's anything else people should know before they hear the story?
1: No, just uh, let it carry you away. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll, We'll talk some more after the story.
0: And now here's Ling Ma reading Seeing Ershadi by Nicole Krauss.
1: Seeing Ershadi. I'd been in the company for more than a year by then. It had been my dream to dance for the choreographer since I first saw his work. And for a decade, all my desire had been focused on getting there. I'd sacrificed whatever was necessary during the years of rigorous training. When at last I auditioned and he invited me to join his company, I dropped everything and flew to Tel Aviv. We rehearsed from noon to five, and I devoted myself to the choreographer's process and vision without reserve, applied myself without reserve. Sometimes tears came spontaneously from something that had rushed upward and burst, when I met people in bars and cafes, I spoke excitedly about the experience of working with the choreographer and told them that I felt I was constantly on the verge of discovery. Until one day, I realized that I had become fanatical, that what I had taken for devotion had crossed the line into something else. And though my awareness of this was a dark blot on what had been up to then a pure joy, I did didn't know what to do with it. Exhausted, after rehearsal, I'd either walk to the sea or go home to watch a film until it got late enough to go out and meet people. I couldn't go to the beach as often as I'd have liked because the choreographer said that he wanted the skin all over our bodies to be as white as the skin on our asses. I'd develop tendonitis in my ankle which made it necessary for me to ice it after dancing. And so I found myself watching a lot of films lying on my back with my foot up. I saw everything with Jean-Louis Trintignant until he got so old that his imminent death began to be too depressing. And then I switched to Louis Garrel, who was beautiful enough to live forever. Sometimes when my friend Romy wasn't working, she came to watch with me. By the time I finished with Karel, it was winter, and swimming was out of the question anyway, so I spent two weeks inside with Ingmar Bergman. When the new year started, I resolved to give up Bergman and the weed I smoked every night. And because the title was appealing and it was made far from Sweden, I downloaded Tastes of Cherry by the Iranian director, Abbas Kiristami. The film opens with the actor Homayoun Arishadi's face. He plays Mr. Badi, a middle-aged man driving slowly through the streets of Tehran in search of someone, scanning crowds of men clamoring to be hired for labor. Not finding what he's looking for, he drives on, into the arid hills outside the city. When he sees a man on the edge of the road, he slows the car and offers him a ride. The man refuses— and when Badi continues to try to convince him, the man gets angry and stalks off, looking back darkly over his shoulder. After more driving, five or seven minutes of it, an eternity in a film, a young soldier appears, hitchhiking, and Badi offers him a ride to his barracks. He begins to question the boy about his life in the army and his family in Kurdistan, and the more personal and direct the questions are, the more awkward the situation becomes for the soldier, who is soon squirming in his seat. Some 20 minutes into the film, Body finally comes out with it. He's searching for someone to bury him. He's dug his own grave into the side of one of those bone-dry hills, and tonight he plans to take pills and lie down in it. All he needs is someone to come in the morning to check that he's really dead, and then to cover him with 20 shovelfuls of earth. The soldier opens the car door, leaps out, and flees into the hills. What Mr. Body is asking amounts to being an accomplice to a crime, since suicide is forbidden in the Qur'an. The camera gazes after the soldier as he grows smaller and smaller, until he disappears altogether into the landscape. Then it returns to Urshadi's extraordinary face, a face that remains almost completely expressionless throughout the film, and yet manages to convey a gravity and a depth of feeling that could never come from acting that can only come from an intimate knowledge of what it is to be pushed to the brink of hopelessness. Not once in the film are we told anything about the life of Mr. Body or what might have led him to decide to end it. Nor do we witness his despair. Everything we know about the depth contained within him we get from his face, which also tells us about the depth contained within the actor, Homayun Ershadi, about whose life we know even less. When I did a search, I discovered that Urshadi was an architect with no training or experience as an actor when Kurosami saw him sitting in his car in traffic, lost in thought, and knocked on his window. And it was easy to understand just by looking at his face how the world seemed to bend toward Urshadi, as if it needed him more than he needed it. His face did something to me. Or rather, the film, with its compassion and its utterly jarring ending, which I won't give away, did something to me. But then again, you could also say that, in some sense, the film was only his face. His face and those lonely hills. Not long after that, it became warm again. When I opened the windows, the smell of cats came in, but also of sunshine, salt, and oranges. Along the wide streets, the ficus trees showed new green. I wanted to take something from this renewal, to be a small part of it, but the truth was that my body was increasingly run down. My ankle was getting worse the more I danced on it, and I was going through a bottle of Advil a week. When it was time for the company to go on tour again, I didn't feel like going, even though it was to Japan, where I'd always wanted to travel. I wanted to stay and rest and feel the sun— I wanted to lie on the beach with Romi and smoke and talk about boys, but I packed my bag and rode with a couple of the other dancers to the airport. We had three performances in Tokyo, followed by two free days and a group of us decided to go to Kyoto. It was still winter in Japan. On the train from Tokyo, heavy tile roofs went by. Houses with small windows. We found a real con to stay at with a room done up with tatami mats and shoji panels, and walls the color and texture of sand. Everything struck me as incomprehensible. I constantly made mistakes. I wore the special bathroom slippers out of the bathroom and crossed the room. When I asked the woman who served us an elaborate dinner what happened if something was spilled on the tatami mat, she began to scream with laughter. If she could have fallen off her seat, she would have but the room had no seats at all. Instead, she stuffed the wrapping for my hot towel into the gaping sleeve of her kimono, but very beautifully, so that one could forget the fact that she was disposing of garbage. On our last morning in Japan, I got up early and went out with a map, on which I had marked the temples I wanted to visit. Everything was still stripped and bare. Not even the plum trees were in blossom yet. So there was nothing to bring out the hordes with their cameras, and I got used to being mostly alone in the temples and the gardens, and to a silence that was only deepened by the loud cawing of crows. So it was a surprise when, having passed through the monumental entrance gate of Nazenji, I ran into a large group of Japanese women chatting happily in sing-song fashion on the covered walkway that led to the abbot's residence. They were all outfitted in elegant silk kimonos, and everything about them, from the ornate inlaid combs in their hair to their gathered obi belts and their patterned drawstring purses, was of another age. The only exception was the dull brown slippers on their feet, the same kind offered at the entrance of every temple in Kyoto, all of which were tiny and reminded me of the shoes the Peter Rabbit lost in the lettuce patch. I tried them myself the day before, shoving my feet into them and gripping with my toes while attempting to slide across the smooth wooden floors, but after almost breaking my neck trying to climb stairs in them, I'd given up and taken to walking across the icy planks in my socks. This made it impossible to ever get warm, and shivering in my sweater and coat, I wondered how the women didn't freeze wearing only silk and whether assistance was needed to tie and wrap and secure all the necessary parts of their kimonos. Without noticing, bit by bit, I'd worked my way into the center of the group, so that when suddenly the women began to move in unison, as if in response to some secret signal, I was swept along, down the wide and dim open-air corridor, carried by the flow of silk and the hurried pitter-patter of tiny slippers. About twenty feet down the walkway, The group came to a halt and spat out from its amoeba-like body a woman dressed in normal street clothes, who now began to address the others. By standing on my tiptoes, I could just see over the women's heads to the 400-year-old Zen garden that was one of the most famous in all of Japan. A Zen garden, with its raked gravel and precise minimum of rocks, bushes, and trees, is meant not to be entered but to be contemplated from the outside and just beyond where the group had stopped was the empty portico designed for this. But when I tried to make my way out by tapping shoulders and asking to be excused, the group seemed only to tighten around me. Whomever I tapped would turn to me with a bewildered look and take a few quick little steps to the left or the right so that I could pass, but immediately another woman in a kimono would flow in to fill the void— either out of an innate instinct to correct the group's balance or just to get closer to the tour guide. Enclosed on all sides, breathing in the dizzying stench of perfume and listening to the guide's relentlessly incomprehensible explanations, I began to feel claustrophobic. But before I could try to elbow my way out more violently, the women suddenly started to move again, and by flattening myself against the wall of the abbot's residence, I managed to stay put forcing them to move around me. They crossed the wooden floor in a chorus of scuffling slippers. It was then that I saw him, making his way along the covered walkway in the opposite direction. He looked older, and his wavy hair had turned silver, making his dark eyebrows seem even more severe. Something else was different, too. In the film, it had been absolutely necessary to project an impression of his physical solidity, which Kiristami had done by keeping the camera closely trained on his broad shoulders and strong torso as he drove through the hills outside Tehran. But even when Urshadi had got out of the car to gaze at the arid hills and the camera had hung back at a distance, he'd appeared physically formidable, and this had given him an authority that combined with the depth of feeling in his eyes, had made me want to weep. But, as he continued down the covered walkway, Urshadi looked almost slender. He'd lost weight, and it was more than that. It seemed that the width of his shoulders had contracted. Now that I was seeing him from behind, I began to doubt that it was Urshadi. But just this disappointment began to pour into me like concrete. The man stopped and turned, as if someone had called to him. He stood very still, looking back at the Zen garden, where the stones were meant to symbolize tigers leaping toward a place they would never reach. A soft light fell on his expressionless face. And there it was again, the brink of hopelessness. At that moment, I was filled with an overwhelmingly tender feeling that I can only call it love. Gracefully, Urshadi turned the corner. Unlike me, he had no trouble moving in those slippers. I started to go after him, but one of the kimonoed women blocked my path. She was waving and gesturing at the group, which was now peering into one of the shadowy rooms of the abbot's house. I don't speak Japanese, I explained, trying to get around her, but she kept hopping in front of me, gibbering away and pointing with more and more insistence at the group, which had now begun to move down the hall toward the anterior garden move with an almost imperceptible shuffle of their combined feet, as if, in fact, thousands of ants were carrying them along. I'm not with the tour, I said, making a little cross with my wrists, which I had seen the Japanese do when they wanted to signal that something was wrong or not possible or even forbidden. I was just on my way out, I said, and pointed toward the exit with the same insistence with which the woman in the kimono was pointing at the group. She grabbed my elbow and was trying to pull me forcibly back in the other direction. Maybe I had upset the delicate balance of the whole, a balance determined by subtleties that I, in my foreignness, would never understand. Or perhaps I had committed an unpardonable act by leaving the group. Again, I had a feeling of impenetrable ignorance, which for me will always be synonymous with traveling in Japan. Sorry, I said, but I really have to go now— and with a tug more violent than I'd intended, I freed myself of her hand and jogged toward the exit. But when I turned the corner, there was no sign of her shoddy. The reception area was vacant, except for the Japanese women's shoes lined up on old wooden shelves. I ran outside and looked around, but the temple grounds were occupied only by large crows, which took clumsily to the sky as I ran past. Love I can only call it that, however different it was from every other instance of love that I had experienced. What I knew of love had always stemmed from desire, from the wish to be altered or thrown off course by some uncontrollable force. But in my love for Urshadi, I nearly didn't exist beyond that great feeling. To call it compassion makes it sound like a form of divine love, and it wasn't that. It was terribly human. If anything, it was an animal love, the love of an animal that had been living in an incomprehensible world until one day it encounters another of its kind and realizes that it has been applying its comprehension in the wrong place all along. It sounds far-fetched, but at that moment I had the feeling that I could save Urshadi. Still running, I passed under the monumental wooden gate and my footfalls echoed up in the rafters. A sense of fear began to seep in, fear that he planned to take his life just like the character he'd barely played, and that I had lost the brief chance I had been given to intercede. When I reached the street it was deserted, I turned in the direction that led to the famous pathway alongside the narrow river and ran, my bag slapping against my thigh. What would I have said to him if I had caught up to him? What would I have asked him about devotion? What was it that I wanted to be when he turned and at last his gaze fell upon me? It didn't matter, because when I came around the bend, the path was empty and the trees black and bare. Back at the ryokan, hunched on the tatami floor, I searched online, but there was no news about Homayun Arshadi, nothing to suggest he was traveling in Japan or no longer alive. My doubt only grew on the flight back to Tel Aviv. The plane glided above a great shelf of clouds, and the farther it got from Japan, the less possible it seemed that the man had actually been Arshadi, until at last it seemed absurd, just as kimonos and Japanese toilets and etiquette and tea ceremonies, which had all possessed irrevocable genius in Kyoto, at a distance, grew absurd. The night after I got back to Tel Aviv, I met Romi at a bar. I told her about what happened in Japan, but in a laughing way, laughing at myself for believing for even a moment that it was actually Urshadi I'd seen and run after. As I told the story, her large eyes became larger. With all the drama of the actress that she is, Romi lifted a hand to her heart and called the waiter to refill her glass, touching his shoulder in the instinctive way she has of drawing others into her world, under the spell of her intensity." eyes locked with mine she removed her cigarettes from her bag lit one and inhaled she reached across the table and laid her hand over my hand then she tilted her chin and blew out the smoke all without breaking her gaze i don't believe it she said at last in a throaty whisper the exact same thing happened to me i began to laugh again crazy things were always happening to Romy her life was swept along by an endless series of coincidences and mystical signs. She was an actress but not a performer, the difference being that at heart she believed that nothing was real, that everything was a kind of game, but her belief in this was sincere, deep, and true, and her feeling for life was enormous. In other words, she didn't live to convince others of anything. The crazy things that happened to her happened because she opened herself to them and sought them out, because she was always trying something without being too invested in the outcome, only in the feeling it provoked and her ability to rise to it. In her films, she was only ever herself, a self stretched this way or that by the circumstances of the script. In the year that we had been friends, I had never known her to lie. "'Come on,' I said, "'you're not serious.' But as she was never less than completely serious even while laughing, Romi, still gripping my hand across the table, launched into her own story about Urshadi. She had seen Taste of Cherry five or six years ago in London. Like me, she had been utterly moved by the film and by Urshadi's face, disturbed even. And yet, at the last moment, she had been released into joy. Yes, joy was what she had felt, walking home from the theater in the twilight to her father's apartment. He was dying of cancer, and she had come to take care of him. Her parents had divorced when she was three, and during her childhood and her teenage years, she and her father had grown distant, very nearly estranged. But after the army, she had gone through a kind of depression, and her father had come in to see her in the hospital and the more he'd sat with her at her bedside, the more she'd forgiven him for the things that she had held against him all those years. From then on, they remained close. She had often gone to stay with him in London, and for a little while, even attended acting school there and lived with him in his apartment in Belsize Park. A few years later, his cancer had been diagnosed, and a long battle ensued that looked to have been won, until at some point it became clear, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that had been lost the doctors gave him three months to live. Romy left everything in Tel Aviv and moved back to her father's apartment, and during the months that his body began to shut down, she stayed by his side, rarely leaving him. He had decided against having any more of the poisonous treatments that would have prolonged his life by only a matter of weeks or months. He wished to die with dignity and in peace, though no one ever really dies in peace, as the body's journey toward the extinction of life always requires violence. These large and small forms of violence were the stuff of their days, but always mingled with her father's humor. They took walks while he could still walk, and when he couldn't anymore, they spent long hours watching detective series and nature documentaries. Seeing her father's transfixed expression in the glow of the TV, it struck Romy that he was no less deeply invested in these stories—the stories of unsolved murders, of spies, and of the struggle of a dung beetle trying to roll its ball of manure over a hill now that his own story was quickly drawing to a close. Too weak to get out of bed to go to the bathroom at night, he would try anyway, and then Romy would hear him collapse on the floor and would go and cradle his head and pick him up, because by then he was no heavier than a child. It was during this time, the time that her father could no longer make it even the short distance to the bathroom and the -the round-the-clock nurse had to throw him over her large Ukrainian shoulder. that. At the nurse's insistence, Romy pulled on her coat and left the house for a few hours to go to see a film. She didn't know anything about the film, but she was drawn to the title, which she had seen on the marquee on a trip to or from the hospital. She took a seat toward the back of the nearly empty theater. There were only five or six people there, Romy said, but unlike when the theater is full and everyone disappears around you as the screen comes alive— she felt acutely aware of the presence of the others, most of whom had also come alone. During the many wordless stretches of the film, stretches in which one hears ear horns and the sound of bulldozers and the laughter of unseen children, and the long shots when the camera rests on Urshadi's face, Romi felt aware of herself watching, and the others also watching. At the moment when she understood that Mr. Body was planning to take his life and that he was looking for someone to bury him in the morning, she began to cry. Soon after that, a woman stood up and walked out of the theater, and this made Rami feel a little bit better, since it created an unspoken bond among those who remained. I said that I wouldn't give away the end, but now I see that there is no way around it, that I will have to, since it was Romy's belief that if the film had come to a normal end, what happened to each of us later almost certainly would not have happened. That is, if after presumably swallowing the pills and putting on the light jacket against the cold, Mr. Body had just lain down in the ditch that he dug, and everything had grown dim as we watched his impassive face watch the full moon sail in and out from behind the smoky clouds, And then, as a clap of thunder sounded, when it had grown so dark that we could no longer see him at all, until a flash of lightning illuminated the screen again, and there he was, still lying there, staring out, still of this world, still waiting as we are still waiting, only to be plunged into darkness again until the next bright flash, in which we discovered that his eyes had at last drifted closed, and then the screen turned black for good. Leaving only the sound of rain falling harder and harder until finally it crescendoed and faded away. If the film had just ended there as it seemed to have every intention of doing, then Romy said it might not have stayed with her. But the film did not end there. Instead, the rhythmic chanting of marching soldiers drifts in, and slowly the screen comes to life again. This time when the same hilly landscape comes into view, it's spring. Everything is green, and and the grainy, discolored footage is shot on video. The soldiers march in formation onto the winding road in the lower left corner of the screen. This new view is surprising enough, but a moment later a member of the film's crew appears, carrying a camera toward another man who is setting up a tripod, and then Urshadi himself, Arshadi, whom we just saw fall asleep in his grave, casually walks into the frame, wearing light, summery clothes. He takes a cigarette from his front pocket, lights it between his lips, and without a word hands it to Kiristami, who accepts it without pausing his conversation with the DP, and without so much as looking at Urshadi, who in that moment we understand is connected to him through a channel of pure intuition. The shot cuts to the sound man, a little farther down the hill, crouching down out of the wind in the high grass with his giant microphone. Can you hear me? A disembodied voice asks. Down below, the drill sergeant falters and ceases his shouting. Ballet, he says, yes. Tell your men to stay near the tree to rest, Kirostami replies. The shoot is over. The last line of the film is spoken a few moments later, as Louis Armstrong's mournful trumpet starts to wail, and the soldiers can be seen sitting and laughing and talking and gathering flowers by the tree, where Mr. Body lay down in the hope of eternal rest, though now the tree is covered with green leaves. We're here for a sound take, Kirastami says. And then it is just that huge, beautiful, plaintive trumpet without words. Romi sat through the trumpet and the credits, and though tears were streaming down her face, she felt elated it was not until some time after she had laid her father in the ground and shoveled the dirt into his grave herself, pushing away her uncle, who tried to pry the tool from her, that Romy recalled Ershadi. So many intense things had happened to her since she had walked home full of joy in the twilight that she hadn't had time to think about the film again. She had stayed on in London to take care of her father's things, and when there was nothing left to take care of, when everything had been finalized and squared away, She remained in the nearly empty apartment for months. During the days, all of which passed in the same way, she lay around listlessly, unable to apply herself to anything. The only time she could feel any desire was during sex, and so she had started seeing Mark again, a man she had dated during the year she was at acting school. He was possessive, which was part of why their relationship had ended in the first place. And now that she had been with other men since they would broken up, he was even more jealous and obsessive and wouldn't stop pushing her to tell him what it had been like with them. But the sex they had was hard and good, and she found it bracing after the months of feeling as though she had no body, as though her father's failing body were the only body there was. At night, after Mark came home from work, Romy would go to his place. And in the darkened bedroom, he would scroll through pornography until he found what he was looking for, and then would fuck her as she lay on her stomach, and they watched two or three men penetrating one woman on the massive screen of his TV, pushing their dicks into her pussy and her ass and her mouth, everyone breathing and moaning in surround sound. Just before he came, Mark would slap Romy hard on the ass, thrusting himself into her and calling her a whore enacting some ancient pain that drove him to believe that the woman he loved would never remain true to him. One night after this performance, Mark had fallen asleep with his arms around her, and Romy had lain awake, for, exhausted as she always was, she couldn't sleep. Finally, she shimmed out from under him and crawled around on the floor in search of her underwear. Having no desire to stay and no desire to go, She'd sunk back down on the edge of Mark's bed and felt the remote control under her. She switched on the TV and surfed the channels, passed over the stories of mother elephants and bee colonies that she had watched with her father, over the cold cases and the late night talk shows, until there, nearly filling the enormous screen, was Urshadi's face. For a second, it appeared larger than life in the otherwise dark room and then it was lost again because her thumb had continued its restless search before she realized what she was seeing. When she flipped back, she couldn't find him. There was nothing on about film or Iran or Kurosami. She sat there startled and bewildered in the dark, and then slowly a sense of longing came over her like a wave, and she started to laugh for the first time since her father had died, and she knew it was time to go home. There was no choice but to believe Romi, Her story was so precise that she couldn't have made it up. Sometimes she exaggerated the details, but she did it believing the exaggerations, and this only made her more lovable, because it showed you what she could do with the raw material of the world. And yet, after I went home and the spell of her presence wore off, I lay on my bed feeling sad and empty, and increasingly depressed, since not only was my encounter with Ershadi not unique, but worse, unlike Romi, I had no idea what it meant or what I was supposed to do with it. I had failed to understand anything or take anything from it, and had told the story as a joke, laughing at myself. Lying alone in the dark, I started to cry. Sick of the pain throbbing in my ankle, I swallowed a handful of Advil in the bathroom. The pill swilled in my stomach with the wine I drank, and soon enough, nausea overtook me, and then I was kneeling on the bathroom floor, throwing up into the toilet. The next morning, I woke to banging on the door. Romy had had a sense that something was wrong and had tried to call, but I hadn't picked up all night. Still woozy, I started to cry again. Seeing the state I was in, she went into high gear, boiling tea, laying me out on the couch and cleaning up my face. She held my hand her other palm resting on her own throat, as if my pain were her pain, and she felt everything and understood everything. Two months later, I quit the company. I enrolled in graduate school at NYU, but stayed on in Tel Aviv through the summer and flew back only days before the start of the semester. Romy had met Amir by then, an entrepreneur 15 years older than her, with so much money that he spent most of his time looking for ways to give it away. He wooed Romy with the same singular drive he applied to everything he wanted. A few days before my flight, Romy threw a goodbye party for me at our favorite restaurant, and all the dancers came and our friends and most of the boys we'd slept with that year. Amir didn't come because he was busy, and the following day, Romy left for Sardinia on his yacht. I packed up my things alone. I was sad to leave and wondered if I'd made a mistake. For a while, we stayed in close touch. Romy got married, moved to Amir's mansion on a cliff above the Mediterranean, and got pregnant. I studied for my degree and fell in love, and then out of it a couple of years later. In the meantime, Romi had two children, and sometimes she sent me photos of those boys whose faces were hers and seemed to borrow nothing from their father. But we were in touch less and less, and then whole years passed in which we didn't speak at all. One day, soon after my daughter was born, I was passing a cinema on 12th Street, and I felt someone's gaze, and when I turned, I saw Arshadi's eyes staring at me from the poster for Taste of Cherry. I felt a shiver up my spine. The screening had already passed, but no one had taken down the poster. I took a photo of it, and that night, I sent it to Romi, reminding her of a plan we'd once hatched to go to Tehran. Me with a fresh American passport without Israeli stamps, and her with the British one she'd had through her father, to sit in the cafes and walk the streets that were the setting of so many films we loved, to taste life there, and lie on the beaches of the Caspian Sea. We were going to find shoddy, who we imagined would invite us into the sleek apartment he had designed himself, and listen while we told him our stories, and then tell us his own while we drank black tea." with a view of the snow-capped Albert's mountains. In the letter, I admitted to her the reason that I'd cried the night she told me about the encounter with her shoddy. Sooner or later, I wrote, I would have had to admit that in the blaze of my ambition, I'd failed to check myself. I would have had to face how miserable I was and how confused my feelings about dancing had become. But the desire to see something from Urshadi, to feel that reality had expanded for me as it had for her, that the other world had come through to touch me, had hastened my revelations. I didn't hear back from Romi for weeks, and then finally her answer arrived. She apologized for taking so long. It was strange, she said. She hadn't thought of Urshadi for years until three months ago when she decided to watch Taste of Cherry again. She'd recently left a mirror, and on nights when she couldn't sleep in the new apartment, with its unfamiliar smells and noises from the street, she would stay up watching movies. What surprised her was how differently Arshadi's character struck her this time. While she'd remembered him as passive, nearly saint-like— Now she saw that he was impatient and often surly with the men he approached, and manipulative in the way he tried to get them to agree to what he wanted, sizing up their vulnerabilities and saying whatever was necessary to convince them. His focus on his own misery and his single-minded determination to carry out his plan struck her as self-absorbed. What also surprised her because she didn't remember it were the words that appear for a moment on the black screen before the film begins in the name of God. How could she have missed that the first time, she wondered? Of course she'd thought of me as she lay in the dark and watched, of that year when we were still so young and spoke endlessly of men. How much time we wasted, she wrote, believing that things came to us as gifts, through channels of wonder in the form of signs, in the love of men in the name of God, rather than seeing them for what they were, strengths that we dragged up from the nothingness of our own depths. She told me about a film that she wanted to write when she finally got the time, which followed the story of a dancer like me. And then she told me about her boys who needed her for everything, it seemed, just as the men in her life had always needed her for everything. It was good, she wrote, that I had a daughter. And then, as if she had forgotten that she had already moved on to other things, as if we were still sitting across from each other deep in one of our conversations without beginning, middle, or end, Romy wrote that the last thing that surprised her was that when Urshadi is lying in the grave he's dug, and his eyes finally drift closed, and the screen goes black. It isn't really black at all. If you look closely, you can see the rain falling.
0: That was Ling Ma, reading Seeing Urshadi, by Nicole Krauss. The story appeared in The New Yorker in March of 2018, and was included in Krauss's collection To Be a Man, which was published by Harper in 2020. So, Ling, the story starts um, pretty much in the middle of a story. That first line, I'd been in the company for more than a year by then, um, assumes we know a lot of things we don't know. You know, we don't know what company. We don't know by when. Uh, We don't even know that she's a dancer yet. Why do you think um, Krauss opened the story, you know, completely in Media Race?
1: Well, I think... um It makes sense for this character. Um, The voice throughout the story sounds so nonchalant, but she's really touching on some darker subjects um, just very nonchalantly. What I like about this voice is that it's just taken for granted. I think the sadness or the melancholy or the sense of being lost, um, she doesn't explicate those things. It's all embedded in the way that she speaks, the narrator.
0: And for most of the story, we don't know much about her other than that she's a dancer. You know, we learn that fast. You know, she flies to Tel Aviv. We don't know where her home is. We don't know where she's flying from. And really, strictly, we don't actually know that she's female for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Um, What effect do you think that has on how we read the story?
1: I think there's a sense of displacement um, throughout. She's not necessarily tethered to one place or thing for very long, although I sense that she wants to be swept up, and that's why she pours so much into her dance company, into uh, the choreographer. She wants to be swept up into something. She wants to be obsessed. She wants to be pulled into place, but she can't be. In the case of dancing, it's because her body gives out there's something. There is a sense of displacement. I think throughout um, the story.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because the story is constantly displacing itself. Right. We start in Tel Aviv. Then we're in Iran mm-hmm. in the middle of this movie with the you know in the the lonely hills outside of Tehran. And then we're in a Zen garden in Kyoto. Yeah. And then we're in London with Romy. So w- yeah. What's the What's the effect of all that scene changing?
1: Well, I was going to say, I think the sense of displacement is also uh, in the three different uh, reactions described to the film. Uh, Between the narrator and Romy. we have three different interpretations of the film. And we think the film is one way, and then in the end, uh, in the last time, I think it's a much more uh, skeptical reaction. And so something that really engages me Uh, reading this story is uh, my shifting view of the film The Taste of Cherry throughout.
0: So you feel influenced by the characters' responses to it?
1: Yes, although I don't think all of these varying reactions to the film, I don't think they diminish the film in any way. I think it makes the films come across as more unknowable or more mysterious by the end, that we have these three shifting interpretations of it. And these three shifting interpretations also are punctuated by three appearances of Urshadi, each one diminishing in power. So in the first instance, he appears in what seems to be a wild coincidence. He appears in person (laughs) in the middle of Japan, just happens to be where the narrator is he's just flickering on screen while Romy is channel surfing. And lastly, the narrator sees him again from a movie poster. I like how the appearances of uh, Arshadi kind of punctuate the three uh, viewings of the film.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because the narrator, I don't think, we, we never see her watching the movie for a second time. She just absorbs it in that first watching.
1: Yeah, it's Romi who uh, changes her mind about the film. Yeah, Towards the end, she says that they wrongly ascribed personal significance to the film and to Urshadi, and it just isn't there. I like that ending.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's that wonderful... Um think that she writes, you know, how much time we wasted believing that things came to us as gifts through channels of wonder in the form of signs and the love of men in the name of God, rather than seeing them for what they were, strengths that we dragged up from the nothingness of our own depths.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Do you agree with Romy that that's what these two characters have been doing through
1: the story? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm completely swept up when both Romy and the narrator give their reactions to the film, and I'm completely swept up with what they're thinking about as they process the film. Um, And I'm also completely swept up when Romy becomes very skeptical and kind of diminishes the film towards the end. Um, I guess I'm swept up in all three cases, and I believe all three cases. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, similar to how Um, something I might have loved when I was in my 20s or as a teenager might seem silly (laughs) to Mm -hmm. me now Mm -hmm. or that they were used as sort of a crutch at the time for what I needed to go through. And now, having gone through some darker periods, I can look back and and maybe feel more skeptical about those artworks I glommed onto. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, Romy's final take is a positive one because she's saying all of these life-changing things were actually our own doing, and not, you know, the work of a mystical figure in a movie or, you know, a man that we met.
1: I believe both versions. <laughs> I believe that they drew <laughs> that they drew power and energy and from the film and from seeing Urshadi, and I believe that. They also summoned it from themselves, too. I think they're not mutually exclusive.
0: Right, right. And when it comes to being swept up in something or swept away by something, you know, that's exactly what the narrator is looking for in the beginning, as you said, when she joins this dance company. But then in Kyoto, she gets swept up in something very much against her will. There's that kind of nightmarish scene in which she's sort of. <laughs> Completely trapped in this crowd of Japanese women who are actively preventing her from pursuing Ashani, if it is him, and pressing up against her, grabbing her by the arm, speaking what feels like gibberish. It's really like a scene from a nightmare. What do, what do you make of that scene?
1: I thought that scene was quite long. I <laughs> I I guess from a writer's perspective, I can see how she how Nicole Krauss sets it up before uh, the narrator even sees Urshadi. We already have a moment where she's um, kind of crowded um, in the middle of uh, this group and she's not able to go her own way. And so the writer sets the precedent for this (laughs) cumbersome uh, arrangement and then we see it in play once she spots Urshadi. I think a lot had to be devoted to the mechanics of that scene and explaining why it would be so hard to (laughs) get out of that group. um, Because it had to be convincing enough so that we understand this is why she could not reach Urshadi, why she couldn't confirm that absolutely it was him and to say something to him.
0: Yeah, would have been a very different story if she had confronted him (laughs) or saved him as she wants to do. But then you wonder, save him from what? Because, you know, the the character is suicidal. Yes, the man. She's assuming this. the The narrator is assuming that the man is also feeling that hopelessness because he's able to convey it. Um, I, I just wonder: is it is it herself she's trying to save, or is it this, you know, sort of figment that she's
1: created? At the time she spots Rashadi, she does seem very lost. You know, she uh, feels physically run down. Her ankle is hurting. She didn't want to go to Japan. She didn't want to put on those performances even though she once really was so invested in her life as a dancer. And I think there's this sense of being lost in that scene and she's literally just looking to cling to something in that moment.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that Urshadi appears to both women in these moments of transition, right? So she's at that point... Between having been passionate about this dance company and wanting to leave it, and then Romy is, you know, sees the movie at a time when she's facing the death of her father, and then sees it again also at a at a time when things are changing for her because she's able when she sees him on the TV to think about getting back to her, her actual life and moving on.
1: It's also interesting that. Um Out of the three appearances of Urshadi, um, two are called into question um, in the story, uh, whether he had actually appeared in Japan or not, and then whether Romi had actually seen him on the TV Mm -hmm. screen or not. The only appearance of Urshadi that's not called into question is when she sees his face on the movie poster,
0: Right, and the movie's not even playing anymore. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just sort of residual. (laughs) That's right. Um, But I I feel like what you said at the very beginning, that you you maybe chose the story because you don't understand it, there's a slipperiness to it, you know? As soon as you sort of feel you're grasping the logic of what's driving this narrator or, you know, what the story is circling around, it slips away. Yes. And become something different. And it's interesting to me how Nicole Krauss does that.
1: I think as a reader all along, what I was waiting for was to see how the film or how Urshadi's appearances in their lives change them. I was waiting for the film to grant <laughs> these characters some kind of absolution. And it doesn't. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Or maybe it does for a time, but that's it. Do they need absolution? They may not need it, but who doesn't want it? <laughs> who True. doesn't want it, right? Um, I, Yeah, that's what drove me to keep reading.
0: In my reading, I'm thinking about him showing up at these times of change or transition. And obviously, in the movie, the character is at a final transition point between life and death. And then in the movie, it's as slippery as in the story because you don't entirely know if Mr. Badi dies, but -hmm. you really, you do know that um, Ershadi doesn't die because he shows up in this afterlife (laughs) of the film, making it clear that everything you've just seen was illusory or fictional.
1: Yeah, I think there's a line in the story Is it life comes rushing back or something in that ending? And I think that's a perfect description of it. Um, When we get to the scenes of the production, it does feel like someone just let the air and the sunshine in uh, very much at the end. And it feels like a sigh of relief or something.
0: Uh, Maybe that's why Romy leaves the movie theater feeling so elated. Mm -hmm. Except it doesn't mean that her father's not going to die.
1: It doesn't mean that the, her father isn't going to die, but the movie gestures towards there's more. <laughs> there's more after this. And mm-hmm. I think that message came to her at the, at the right time, even though she diminishes the film later.
0: Maybe she just doesn't need it later.
1: Yeah, she doesn't need it later.
0: Why do you think we end with that idea that, you know, when the thunder and lightning stop, the screen doesn't turn black, you can still see rain. It's a beautiful image. Does it say something about the story?
1: I was wondering about that, too. I think it's part of the story's mystery because the first time I saw the film, I do assume that the screen goes to black. But this idea that the screen doesn't go to black, but that it's still filming, that you're seeing the darkness and you're seeing the rain, I think it contributes to this idea that life goes on, it keeps happening. But maybe that's a little bit too explicit of an interpretation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you were saying earlier that you were drawn to works of art about other works of art or that incorporate or play with other works of art. Mm-hmm. What is appealing about that idea as a writer?
1: Well, it's also absorbing the readers' associations of that artwork along with it, and it gives the fiction sort of a a kind of charge. It takes on more meanings when moved into the realm of fiction and thinking about how the story tries to metabolize this other artwork for its own aims. Um, I think that was what drew me to the story initially. Now I feel kind of bad because I'm going to reference <laughs> uh, something that I've done. Um, I guess I did this in severance with the Bible. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I wanted the reader to take all of their associations of the Bible, of Christianity, with them into the novel. Um, it's something that's already there. You can play with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How, how different would it be to read the story never having seen the movie?
1: I don't think it would be as powerful. <laughs> I think you need <laughs> the movie. <laughs> um, the story is completely comprehensible. <laughs> If you were just to have read it without seeing the film, because the descriptions are quite um, detailed, but I don't think it's the same as experiencing the film and then coming to the story.
0: Right. You would lose that infusion of, of whatever emotion the, the movie created in you. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's a bit of a shortcut, but at the same time, then you also have to give the original work what it deserves, so you're you doing double the work in some ways.
1: Yeah. Um, often we approach a work of fiction as something separate, um, separate from our reality. Um, we, you know, read something because we want to escape into a different world. But when that work of fiction brings some kind of artifact from our world into it, into the realm of fiction, I think it moves the fiction closer to our world. <laughs> What is your final
0: takeaway from the story, if you have to give it some kind of meaning? It's called seeing Arshadi, and it's interesting that in the story, these moments of seeing Arshadi are, as you said, called into question. They don't actually know if they saw him, or if it was just wanting to see him in somebody else's face or or, uh, physique. So what are they seeing when they're seeing Arshadi?
1: I think they're just communing with the film and they're communing with their lives through the film. But I think what I like about this story as a kind of takeaway is that it feels at moments thrillingly supernatural. And at other points, it feels expected. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have the sense when I read uh, the story all the way through and at the end, I have the sense of being delivered back to my life, <laughs> to my daily routines, um, and uh, my daily obligations. So I like that the story contains both,
0: mm-hmm. in the way that the movie does too. Mm-hmm. And you're delivered back to to practicality at the end.
1: Yes, but I like that it opens up <laughs> the possibility of a portal
0: <laughs> of a portal elsewhere. <laughs> Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ling. Thank you so much, Deborah.
0: Nicole Krauss has published four novels, including The History of Love and Forest Dark. Her most recent book is the story collection To Be a Man, which was published in twenty twenty and won the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Literary Prize in twenty twenty two. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since two thousand four. Ling Ma is the author of the novel Severance, which won the Kirkus Prize in 2018, and the story collection Bliss Montage, which came out in September. A story from the collection, Peking Duck, was first published in The New Yorker's 2022 summer fiction issue. You can download more than 180 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.